From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This week, I'm joined by a White House historian and best-selling author and one of my newest friends from the old days. Jennifer Pickens is at the helm of all the decadent and high-profile events that take place at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. She's interviewed members of America's First Families, their chiefs of staff, White House social secretaries. She's even gotten to know their pets. Jennifer's written a series on various White House staples from holiday traditions to the infamous dogs and a couple of cats that run the halls. Let's just say you can most definitely find Jennifer entertaining at the White House. Jennifer Pickens, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here, Dana. Are you in Texas today? I am. I'm home in Dallas. Dallas is a great place. Let's start with where you started. Uh, Tell us about your upbringing, where and how you grew up, and what you thought you wanted to do when you were a little girl. Oh, wow. Um, Well, I grew up, I was born, raised here in Dallas, Texas. Interestingly, I've never actually left. I've lived here my entire life. I think I had a very charmed but very unique upbringing. I was the youngest of three children, but I was a surprise 12 years later. So my brother was 15 years older and my sister was 12 years older. And um, so I got to spend a lot of time with my mom growing up individually. My dad had to travel some for work, but then on the, you know, the holidays and the weekends and stuff, I loved it when we were all together. I really think I've always had a love of history and politics. I do remember at a young age, even if it was a not only just family dinners, but holiday dinners, some of those great debates that were going on in politics. And I definitely was instilled a sense of gratitude of the country we live in and just a lot of pride in that United States story and how lucky we are all to be Americans. Did you have good history teachers? I did. I had great history teachers. I actually um, invited several of them to my wedding. I was so close, especially in college. But um, I think my parents, too, were part of that, of just teaching the fundamentals and what's important. I remember having to watch, you know, movies, even if there were some of the long and drawn out ones with my parents growing up. There were documentaries and things just to instill that sense of pride. And were they involved in politics? Some. You know, they definitely were. And, you know, as as we're having this conversation, I remember my dad worked with, for a time, Ross Perot. And I remember we were a split family. And between my first, you know, presidential election, I really remember probably was, I think I was a freshman in high school. And it was, you know, the Bush versus Perot debate. And it was every, you know, my parents loved President Bush, but they also knew and worked with Ross Perot. And they loved the idea of a businessman. And, you know, they knew him personally. And I remember, I, you know, so I grew up, but I also in high school was at an all girls school. And I remember that first watching they had volunteers come from all those campaigns, watching that debate and being so frustrated that the Bush and the Crow speakers were not as prepared as the Clinton one and being so frustrated by that and coming home and talking to my parents about it. Hmm. That's really interesting. So then you, you go to college What did you think you were going to do out of that? 
I knew I wanted, I probably, I think I really, and I still sometimes do, wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. I did love debating the issues. Um, in college, my parents were really great. I wanted to get involved in politics pretty early. So my parents were willing to introduce me to some people that were very involved as an introduction, but then I had to go meet with them and make the ask. And so my first job was um, with Ann Miller and Associates. And I remember I was making $5 an hour and there was a lot of stuffing, a lot of stamping, but she was great to introduce me to that world. She wasn't afraid to have me in the room when the candidates were there. And in college, it that was makes a, really- a big difference. Uh, tell, it, tell people a little bit more about that, because that doesn't always happen. Sometimes people like to hoard their power, which is often the proximity to the principal, the boss, the candidate, the president, whoever it might be. Absolutely. And Anne was so great. And, you know, I was in there at the time. It was a really big deal. We knew we needed Rick Perry to be the lieutenant governor because if he wasn't lieutenant governor, it would dampen the efforts for George W. Bush to run for president because we needed a Republican in below him. And so he would sometimes be in the room. Kay Bailey Hutchinson used her for fundraising and Kay Bailey became a great friend and mentor. And I just, you know, when you were saying that, Dana, I was so lucky, you know, pretty much my next job after college was with Ambassador Gene Phillips, who I know you know. And I just feel so blessed to have had that. And I was thinking about what you just said about proximity to the principal and the trust. And I'll never forget, it was I was a couple of years out of college. I'd had another job. I really wanted to work for the reelection campaign for George W. Bush. And some friends had you know, given me the contact information to Jean and I'd reached out to her and she brought me in for an interview, but she was an ambassador stationed in Paris. So she had come back and was getting everything set up for the finance team, for the reelection campaign. We had this great conversation. She offered me the job. She basically gave me a day or two to get my life in order, get my other job situated. I took a huge pay cut, but I knew I wanted to work for her. And it wasn't, but just a few days later, she sat me down and said, I'm leaving to go back to Paris. I need to get my family to bring him back home. But interesting news, Carl Rove will be here in a few days. If the event goes great and is, you know, wonderful, we've got your back. You know, I'm going to be just please do everything you can to make it perfect. However, you know, it's just part and just, but part setting up the stage for how important it was. If it didn't go well, there was pretty much nothing she could do. I probably needed to find a new line of work. And um, I say that, you know, part kidding, but part so grateful that she set me up high expectations, very demanding, but also gave me a lot of the ability to let that be my event and prove myself. But did you have any idea what you were doing? A little bit, you know, I'd had background of doing the events. I'd worked for Ann. I'd had other jobs, but I just remember being so nervous that it was Carl Rove. And there is a difference, Dana, I think, between a president, well, at least there was, especially for during the Bush years, a presidential event versus other presidential events. The name tags need to be different. The level needs to be different. Everything needs to have an I dotted and a T crossed. And I think she expressed that, but it was definitely a sink and swim world. And I'm just so, I mean, Jean and I became so close and I'm so grateful to her. My second child is actually named Margaret after her child and the godmother to my second born. So I'm so grateful to Jean, but it was, you know, a lot of learning by example, watching her, what she did, and just that expectation of the most important things and doing everything right. How did that event go then? It was great. <laughs> think, is this the know, one where you picked up Carl Rove from the airport? 
That was the next event. And I do remember, you know, we laugh now because I know Carl personally and my husband knows him and he is the nicest guy. But there was that sense of, oh, my gosh, it's Carl Rowe. And I think I told the story to you. I've never lived in another city full time. But I was so nervous about picking up Carl Rowe late at night at the airport, driving him out to DFW and then picking him up again and taking him to DFW like after a few hours of sleep. I think I practiced that route like 20 times. <laughs> Brian was like, how many more times are we going to drive it? But I've always said I was so grateful because when I passed the first expressway, Carl looked at me and goes, weren't we supposed to get on there? <laughs> so I was glad I had rehearsed and came well prepared. <laughs> That's so funny. And yes, and now, of course, you know Carl very well. So yeah. how does it happen that you become a historian? Is that something that you over time you realize, oh, I've become a historian? Or did you say, I want to become a historian, I'm going to set out to do that? I think my my entrance to the field is very different than others. And part of my story of growing up was, I still remember as a little girl, you know, at Thanksgiving, my brother and dad would leave to go out and to go to the country to go hunting. And I could still hear the creak of that attic door coming down. And my mom would go upstairs to bring down the first of many boxes of Christmas decorations. And she would spend about a week setting up for Christmas. And we had nine Christmas trees, Dana, put up in our house, floor to ceiling. Each one had a theme. And so in 2004, at the end of a very hard you know, campaign, we Brian, Brian and I were lucky enough to be invited to the White House Christmas party. I'd never been to the White House before. As much as I loved history, I loved the symbolism of the White House. And I remember it had lightly started to snow. I remember that long walk up. You know, you're entering the White House and the moon was full over the American flag. It had set every element of a Capri-esque moment you could ask for and walking in and just feeling so overwhelmed and really, you know, tearing up and crying, quite frankly. And Mrs. Bush had done such a beautiful job setting up with it. Merity and Melanie was the theme. So it was a musical theme at the White House. And I wanted the next morning to go buy a book on it to give my mom because she loved Christmas. And we loved watching the Home and Garden Channel with them setting up for the holidays at the White House. And there wasn't one. And so in the back of my mind, I think that's when the idea first happened. And I really started to research it for fun. And it was just sort of a hobby. And then about two or three years, I guess two years after 04, I was offered a great job, quite frankly. It was a job I wanted for a presidential campaign but honestly, it was with the wrong candidate. And as much as I loved the job offer and was so grateful for it, and it was really hard to turn down, we had our first baby and my heart just wasn't in it. And I feel so fortunate to you know, be married to Brian and he spent a lot of hours and days talking it through with me. And he goes, you know, you've always wanted to do the book. Maybe now's the time. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. So how far back do you go with the Christmas at the White House book? So my niche and specialty with my books is pretty much Jackie Kennedy to the present. And Jackie Kennedy was the first first lady to be born in the 20th century. And I will tell you, you know, with each first lady, especially Mrs. Kennedy, I, there's a lot of element of surprise for me a lot, even though I loved history and studied it so much in high school and college. There's a lot I've learned about our first families I didn't know before. And for for the young people listening here, how do you go back and research administrations before the digital age? 
It's very different and you will learn very different um, things. Each library, a lot of people think because of NARA, they're all under the same umbrella. And That's the archives office. Yes, the National Archives and Record Administration, my apologies. But each library has its own flair. And I think each library has a very unique, I think in many ways, they are a reflection of the presidency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's different now. I will say, Dana, you know, I've done three books. It's been over the course of, gosh, about 15 years. And or now I'm writing, you know, write different articles and pieces. There's a lot more online. So you're going to have a lot more success as you today than I did, you know, in 2000 and what was that? I guess six when I started, but there were unique challenges. You know, you would either have to fly to a library and go hard copy things. I've spent time. I never thought I would do this again after high school, but I actually had to get on microfilm at the Washington (laughs) library to find old newspapers. Luckily, a lot of that is online and digital now where it didn't used to be, but there were a lot of different challenges. But one of the things I learned, I think interesting with your background is you would read a press release. And so I'd be writing something about Christmas and checking it with the press release, but the photograph might not match the press release. And that's when I really realized how important it was to start interviewing different people that have worked at the White House and what their memories were, especially about things. I think now we're getting better about it, but I think oftentimes things are traditions and things that take place at the White House are a true reflection of the presidency. There's no greater metaphor, in my opinion, for our republic than the White House. And symbolically, it's so important. The White House is not just a home to our president, but it's also the office to the president. And it's also a museum that is open to the public. And I think a lot of us forget how lucky we are as Americans to have that building and that structure that operates in three different ways. There's nothing else like it in the world. Mm. And so when you're studying things like Christmas or the Easter egg roll or a state visit, those are reflections of the presidency, but they're also a reflection of our country. If you think about Christmas, the first president to have a Christmas tree up in the White House was Benjamin Harrison. The late 1800s is when the average American had a Christmas tree in their home. So I think it's when you study the White House, you're really studying the story of America. At that time. That's so interesting. OK, just quickly, maybe tell us about the other two books, because you did one about presidential pets, which led you and I to work together on presidential pooches. Um at the White House that we did for Fox Nation. I remember Fox Nation said, oh, we want to interview you about pets at the White House. I said, oh, no, you don't want to interview me. You want to interview Jennifer Pickens because she knows what she's talking about. You've already done all the research. Well, you were so sweet. I loved that book. And my favorite story of it, of course, Dana, is one that you told on The Five when you were talking about the President Bush saving the turkeys twice that day during the annual turkey garden. And But it's a great book. And another it's another reflection of what the average American home is with all the different pets and animals. We should tell that story a little bit. So what happened was it was the day before Thanksgiving and President Bush was going to pardon the turkeys. And there's always two turkeys to be pardoned. And so... The White House is going about its normal business and the event staff is getting ready for that. And you have to set the press up uh, with all their chairs and everything so that they can get the best pictures and everything. Sometimes the president takes a question or two. And the president is at the Oval Office desk, at the Resolute desk, and he hears this commotion and he sees his dog, Barney, chasing after the turkeys. And he's fast and the turkeys were not so fast and they weren't used to this kind of a attack. And so the president leapt up and starts yelling at Barney 
to knock it off, brings him into the Oval Office to protect the turkeys. So that's why they got saved twice that day by President Bush, because not only did he save them from Barney, but he pardoned them so they didn't have to become your Thanksgiving meal. And I just love, I mean, it just humanizes President Bush so much. (laughs) Well, yeah, they're just like us. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's true about pets at the White House. I remember Mrs. Bush saying that one of the reasons to have the dogs and the cat at the White House is that the White House can sometimes feel like living in a museum, but it is also their home. And pets make a house a home. They do. And they make the house a home not only for the president, but for the amazing staff that works there. There's about 100 people, and they're referred to as the executive resident staff that work at the White House. And in many ways, they live at the White House. They are dedicated to that home in our country, regardless of who's in office. So it's the chefs, it's the butlers, it's the housekeepers, it's the executive, and it's everyone that works at the executive residence is what they're referred to, and the White House chief usher. And I remember one of my favorite stories that's so emotional and sort of hard to tell is when I was interviewing much of the staff, they would talk a lot about Spot, President Bush's Springer Spaniel. And Spot's so significant, she was First Lady Barbara Bush and President George Herbert Walker's dogs was Millie. She had the puppy Spot. So Spot is the only dog in White House history to live at the White House under two different administrations. Mm -hmm. And so she was born at the White House and then returned, of course, with George W. Bush. And she suffered a stroke and they let it be known to the White House resident staff. They were going to have to put her down. And I thought it was so sweet. People would tear up telling me that story of them going to go tell Spot goodbye. Yeah. And the president took her outside to the South Lawn and just held her. Yeah. yeah, It's quite emotional. Right. And what were some other presidents that had some crazy pets? Oh, there were so many. I mean, the largest menagerie of the modern day first family was certainly the Kennedys. The Kennedys are a great starting point for me. They were the first to have a themed Christmas tree. And then they had this large menagerie of pets. They were such an injection of life to the White House. And uh, Macaroni, of course, is one of the favorites. She would roam the White House lawn. People would often try to stick their hands through the gates to pull out Mm -hmm. a piece of hair. She received a lot of her own fan mail which I loved. But of course, I think the greatest champion of all White House pets is without a doubt, Millie Bush, because she authored her own book mm-hmm. <laughs> through Barbara Bush. But I loved about the Bushes is the pet served such a great purpose of a friend and they were support and they were, you know, making, as you said, the president's house a home. But they were also a great way for the first families to reach out for, you know, everyone really in the world, Mrs. Bush's book was actually published in other languages. Oh, really? Like hmm. Bush. Yeah. So it was one of the, the president used to laugh. His dog made more than he did because the book had raised so much money. <laughs> I have a signed really, copy of that book, actually. Yeah. Um, is by, so by Millie and by Barbara Bush, actually. Exactly. Exactly. And then I loved, of course, as you know, First Lady Laura Bush. I think one of the most ingenious things of that administration was They were so heartbroken after 9-11 happened that the White House was shut down. It was one of the first times really the home was shut down and not open to tours to the public. So that third element of the White House being a museum was really closed off for quite some time. And so Mrs. Bush and you all were so brilliant to come up with the idea of the Barney can and putting this little bitty camera 
on Barney and Barney would run through the White House looking at the Christmas decor. And it was one of the most successful web launches of all times. And so then it wasn't, it was the whole world was able to come in and see the White House at that time. And I loved the way it evolved and the press office helped so much and started having plots. And then it wasn't just about Christmas. There was Valentine's Day and other great highlights that would happen that you all would use the Barney cam for. Yep. Now let's talk quickly about the third book, which is so beautiful. And this is about first ladies. And you talk a lot about the state dinners and what goes into those and how important they are, not just for a social event, but they can often be used as forms of diplomacy. Absolutely. The entertaining book is truly near and dear to my heart. And it took years to write. It's really four different books sort of bound into one. It's set up as you know, state visits, like you said, so it's state and official visits. It's all the state dinners and the royal visits that have happened to the White House. Then there's the section on traditions, which are all of the things we think about that we have in our own home from the Easter egg roll. We might not necessarily have a roll, but we celebrate Easter, Christmas. But it also includes things that are unique to America, like the governor's ball or inaugurations. And then we have this section on unique events that are happening really only during that administration. So if it's the Clintons, it's the Millennium Dinner, and we're getting ready to have the 50th anniversary of the POW Dinner during the Nixon administration and other once in a lifetime events that have happened. And then the final section, of course, is presidential homes, which I loved and especially your boss was so known for doing George W. Bush. Oftentimes world leaders would wanna be in a little bit more private or intimate setting. And so they would wanna go to the president's personal home. So for the Bushes, of course, it was going to Crawford, Texas and the president's ranch where they can be a little bit more private and not be a little bit out of the limelight from the White House. Yeah. And I, I do think that, you know, this book in particular gives a lot of detail and tells us a lot about first ladies, especially and how, and when you think about so many administrations, you can't help but and you think about some of the successes they have, I think entertaining is a big part of that. We think about his, how successful Ronald Reagan is, for example, with foreign diplomacy, as he said. Mrs. Reagan had nearly a state dinner a month. That's mm. not including the cheese, the traditions, but truly they were constantly every couple of weeks having um, someone come from abroad. And I loved some of the stories about them. Of course, for the state dinner for Russia, that was so important. When I was interviewing people, Lynn Cheney said you could actually feel the Cold War melting in the room, which mm. I thought was fascinating. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and I love so many other things. I think she sort of gets a little bit of an unfair um, light on her during her tenure. Roland Mesnier became a dear friend through this process of writing these books, and he was the White House executive pastry chef. He got his job under the Carter administration and then worked all the way through First Lady Laura Bush. So how amazing to have someone there all of those years. And he said that while Miss Reagan had incredibly high expectations, she always made them known on the front end and was part of the story and part of coming up with the plan. And I loved that, that, you know, she really, while the bar was set high, she was participating and made those expectations known. One of my favorite stories of her was going, she was having this, fantastic state dinner in the Rose Garden. And she goes out that morning and Dana, the roses were not in bloom like they were expecting at the White House for the Rose Garden. And she knew she wanted it to be, flowers were really important. I don't remember exactly which head of state was that it was coming. So she had pretty much every rose available in Washington, DC delivered to the White House. And all these volunteers showed up 
and we're hand wiring roses into the rose garden so it would appear as if it was in full bloom. And of course, the press coverage was so important. And as I'm sure as you know, as press secretary, oftentimes we might not write as much about a state dinner, but I can tell you the country that's here visiting, the visiting head of state's country, they are writing a lot about our state dinner. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it's really important how it's it a all- huge deal. So I really encourage people to get that book. I wonder about in you know, there's so much that is changing in our society now, and a lot of things feel out of control. And I get a sense from looking at your work that one of the ways to feel in control is to keep some traditions. And that might mean, you know, sitting down not to a state dinner, but to Sunday supper, perhaps with your own family and having those conversations, but being able to break bread together is a wonderful way to form relationships that keep people from being lonely. Absolutely. And if COVID taught us anything, it's how important that is. But I do agree with you, Dana. You know, that's something our families really, you know, as our children, we have four girls. Um, and that was part of me sort of switching gears a little bit from working on campaign work all the time to writing books. I loved my firstborn, Abby, had just been born and I wanted to be able to spend more time with her. And luckily she was a great napper, so I could get a lot of work done. But to your question specifically, those things are so important. And I think being able to break bread and thinking about how I grew up and listening to people, we, you know, in the words of President Gerald Ford, we need to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. And I do think entertaining and being able to have conversations and open dialogues are so important. And I think traditions are an important way to do that. And I think while each first lady has continued those traditions, part of it is also they're able to put their own spin on it. And some of them are able to grow it and to change it slightly to fit their taste. And the Clintons loved bigger parties. They, you know, would have state dinners, but they didn't feel the need to, as Mrs. Reagan and First Lady Barbara Bush and First Lady Laura Bush, they preferred those smaller, more intimate gatherings that would fit inside the state dining room. You would have about 130 people in attendance that could fit those round tables in. I love that Mrs. Kennedy, instead of having this big drawn out dinner with one big long E-shaped table, which we had had for decades and decades and decades, Mrs. Kennedy switched it and made it these small, more intimate round table conversations. Certain first ladies like to keep them intimate and in that room. The Clintons wanted to have much bigger parties. So they would have people come to the White House. They would have, you know, a cocktail hour maybe inside the home. But then they would often tent the South Lawn and you would take a trolley sometimes to go down to the end of the White House yard to eat dinner in these big grand tents. So while we continue those traditions, they each sort of put their own spin on it. And um, the Obamas loved Halloween. That really wasn't, yeah. well, certainly Halloween yeah. celebrations. Miss Nixon had, a, you know, they sort of made that the annual tradition of a trick or treat ceremony happening at the White mm-hmm. House. And I think that's going to continue. More to come right after this. What about you? Um, you are raising four daughters and do you have like a, a secret sauce or something? How do you do that? magic wand? Uh, There is no magic wand to raising children. If there's anything um, I know for sure, it's that. But I think, you know, George W. Bush said the most important thing, and that is a parent can give a child is unconditional love. And I think that's, you know, something that I've really tried to always make sure that my family knows, Brian and I, you know, make sure the girls know we love them no matter what. And I think that truly, he couldn't have phrased it better. That's the biggest gift you can give a children. We do try to, you know, there's lots of challenges, especially in today's world. And I do sometimes feel like, especially as parents, 
We're sort of trying to steer a ship that no one's been a captain of before with all the different technology and social media. Sort of what you were asking about with first families, where society is changing so much, technology is changing so much. And so I do think there's a lot of challenges we're facing. And Brian and I talk a lot about nature deficit disorder. I think we need to be outside more. We need to spend time with our kids more. And I think it is a big challenge. Anyone can go into a restaurant that's listening right now and go and see everyone's on their phone. Sometimes they're not looking up. They're not making eye contact. They're not talking to each other. So that's something that I'm having to you know work at really hard every day. And as we all are, is to be more mm-hmm. present in the moment. Mm-hmm. That is the, you know, even if you think back to the Bible, God is constantly telling us not to worry and to focus on what on the here and now. And it's just, it's a very difficult things for, for humans to do. Uh, but Absolutely. we continue to work at it. What is some and of the I best? Ad- your, and I will okay. say, Dana, you have some of the best advice and everything will be okay. For oh, thank you. Parents is, and that's gratitude. Yeah. And whether it's a gratitude journal, but being able to say to each other at the dinner tables, what are we grateful for? And um, I did love, you know, Jackie Kennedy said, if you bungle raising your children, nothing else matters in life. And I think that's true. Mm-hmm. And I think your advice of gratitude to one another is, you know, one of the most important things we can be doing. Michael Strain of AEI has just published a study that showed empirical evidence of having a gratitude attitude adding to your health, wealth and success of your life. And I need to dig into that study a little bit more. But it is just it's just true. And it's wonderful that we have science now that can back up what we were told again in the Bible. (laughs) No, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, the other thing, Dana, I think a lot about how you grew up you know, in Wyoming and Colorado and more outside, I think one thing that I was taught that we're trying to do our best, you know, with our children is to let them do it themselves. I do think we're in a little bit of an age where a lot of parents want to go fix everything for their kids. And I think part of being young and growing up is to learn to be a self-advocate. And I kind of, you know, I always want my children to share their own story, but one that Maggie often says it's okay to tell is, you know, we're really prideful of that shared American story. And at school one time, she wanted, we love to watch some of the things like, you know, What Made America Great by Brian Kilmeade, those shows, your Fox Nation specials. We love those things and really celebrating our American heroes. And when she was asked to ID, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, she gave an answer. And the on the grade, it said some of your information response was not relevant to class material because she had sort of stuck up for him and said he was the first to have an African-American dine at the White House, Booker T. Washington. And he took off some points. And Mm. I think one thing that's really great is my children were able to go in, sit down with their teacher, talk about why she felt the need to add it. And she got the points back. Oh, that's great. (laughs) And so I think part of it too is all of us learning to advocate. I know if my parents haven't, had not given me that skill, I wouldn't be able to achieve what I have. It's not easy. You know, the Christmas book, one of the things I'm most proud of is every living first lady wrote a forward to their own section. Mm -hmm. And there's not many books where you have Republicans and Democrats, both sides of the aisle. I was able to cold call Tish Baldrige. She was Jackie Kennedy's first social secretary. And I eventually was able to catch her live on the phone and we hit it off. And she really challenged me to get all the living first ladies involved And, you know, I've learned and part of listening to your podcast, I think a great theme is it's okay to be told no. It's okay to ask for help. I'm, you know, I was not innately a good writer. 
I've ordered all three of the books you recommend in your book about how to be a better writer. So I have sometimes two editors. Um, and those are the things it's okay to ask for help for people to connect to people. I was so grateful. Um, and raising your hand to say, yes, I would volunteer after the Bush campaign to be part of Laura Bush's um, advanced team. So I was lucky enough to get to know Anita McBride that way. And Anita was so great. And I've learned by, you know, my children learning now is something that I think I learned growing up. Sometimes it's about timing. Obviously, you know, if you run into Dana Prino, I watched people when you were here last, Dana, and everybody wanted to come up and get a photograph and say a word. And you were so kind to them. But timing's important. So the first time I saw Anita wasn't really quick. Can you run this idea by Mrs. Bush? You know, I waited until <laughs> the right time. And I developed a relationship with her to where she could trust me. And she knew that my books would be a celebration. What so is some that, of the best advice you've ever been given and that you find yourself passing on to others, either your daughters or people who come to you for mentoring? Oh, wow. Um, you know, Dana, we are in graduation season. And so one of the things that I always will turn to, and it's a question that actually came up, I got to speak to um, the Women's Leadership Council at Ole Miss recently, and some of those kids were so great, and I couldn't help myself all of a sudden remembering Barbara Bush's graduation speech. And I think, you know, in part of that speech, she said the race, the winner of this race, when she was talking about it, will be the first to realize her dream, not society's dream, but her own personal dream. And so I think that's something really important that we, you know, it's not what somebody else wants you to do. It's what you want to do and what makes you happy. And so a, a couple of last questions. What do you read I for love, fun? Dana, I will have to one funny story. I think, I gosh, I hope I'm getting this right. But I loved that. I believe First Lady Laura Bush Googled who gave her commencement speech. And it turned out it was President George Herbert Walker. Bush. Oh, yeah. That's speech. a great story. Somebody she would get to know very well. But it's yes. pretty funny because nobody remembers who their graduation speaker is usually. <laughs> a couple of quick questions. Who would you love to have at a dinner party? If you could pick like four people in history, who would they be? Oh, that's so hard. And um, I think I'd have to have a founding father without a doubt. And I you know, love the idea of having Thomas Jefferson there maybe to ask him. I always think it's so interesting on his tombstone. He did not list um, being president of the United States as one of the three things he was most proud of. Mm. So I've always wanted to know, which I think maybe we need more leaders that think that way. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to have a first lady for sure. Maybe Dolly Madison. Oh, and, yeah. That'd be a good uh, one. Yeah, but, yes. Learning about how she decided what she would save at the White House before the British would burn it. Um, oh, gosh, Dana. You know, probably I'd love to have a family member. I'd love a chance to be with one of my grandparents again. Mm-hmm. Well, how proud they would be of you. I hope you're sweet. Um, Jennifer and I didn't know each other during the Bush administration. We've gotten to know each other after. And I'm so glad because I say that we have a new friend from the old days. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer is a national treasure. I'm so glad you got to meet her. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.
Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.